First Clement chapter 5 says, but to pass from the examples of ancient times, because you remember that Clement was giving us a few examples uh, from the Torah. He was talking about how, well, there was Cain and Abel, there was Jacob and Esau, there was Joseph and his brothers, there was uh, Aaron and Miriam against Moses, there was Dathan and Abiram in, the, in Korah's rebellion. All of these examples of baseless hatred and envy and jealousy. Uh, and so now he's, he's, he's holding these up as negative examples, you know, not positive role models, saying this is the way that you shouldn't be behaving. And then he says, but to pass from the examples of ancient times, let us come to those champions who lived nearest to our times. Let us set before us the noble examples which belong to our own generation. Uh, what is his own generation? Remember, I told you this epistle is being written in 95, the year 95. So he's speaking of the apostolic generation, the generation of the apostles. And so he says, uh, we're going to take a look at examples from the apostolic generation. Because of jealousy, even among the apostles, not among the apostles themselves, one to another, but among the uh, the Christians, the believers of the apostolic generation, there was jealousy and envy. He says, because of jealousy and envy, the greatest and most righteous pillars were persecuted and fought to the death. We're speaking of Simon and uh, I mean Simon Peter and Paul. He refers to them as the greatest and most righteous pillars. This language should be familiar to you. You might have encountered it elsewhere, probably in Galatians, where. Paul refers to James, Peter, and John as the pillars of the living temple or the pillars of the assembly. Architectural language. They are the, you know, the pillars hold everything up, right? They hold the, hold the structure up. Clement seems to be including Paul as one of the pillars in, in his opinion. He's one of the pillars. So he says, let us set before our eyes the good apostles. There was Peter who, because of unrighteous jealousy, endured not one or two, but many trials, and thus, having given his testimony, went to his appointed place of glory. Now, we learned not too long ago in this class, well, Tuesday night class, not this particular class, but uh, we learned the story of the Neronian persecution, and the martyrdom of Peter. And this is uh, exactly where we have ended up again. We've come, you know, come back to this very text. That's, we had studied chapter 5 and chapter 6 during that class, and that's what we're looking at again. So we're speaking, he's speaking about Peter's, um, Peter's martyrdom, and he attributes it to jealousy and uh, baseless hatred. How so? I mean, Peter was crucified by Nero. I mean, there's uh, baseless hatred and jealousy, sure, in, in Nero, but uh, this, the example of Nero doesn't really correspond uh, so well with the other examples that he gave us, because in all the other examples, it was uh, fraternal jealousy. It was Jacob against Esau. It was the Korah's rebellion, you know, within the, within the people of Israel. It was Joseph and his brothers. You know, he didn't, he didn't say, and Pharaoh against the children of Israel or something like this. So he didn't refer to an outside persecutor. It's inside. 
So the what this implies is that there was some sort of um, betrayal in the midst of the Neronian persecution uh, within the with either within the body of Messiah itself there in Rome, or perhaps uh, between the Jewish community and the believing community in Rome. So Clement is hinting here that Peter was betrayed by informers during the Neronian persecution. I think that's what you have there. Because remember, as we learned the story, there were informers at work. And some of that information was extracted under torture as well. He goes on. Because of jealousy and strife, Paul, by his example, pointed out the way to the prize for patient endurance. What is the prize for patient endurance and what is this place of glory we're speaking of? Of course, we're speaking of uh, the reward in the hereafter, the reward of the resurrection. Because of jealousy and strife, Paul, by his example, pointed out the way to the prize for patient endurance. After he had been seven times in chains, had been driven into exile, had been stoned, and had preached in the east and the west, he won the genuine glory for his faith. Having taught righteousness to the whole world and having reached the farthest limits of the West. Okay, that's a big sentence. A lot of information there. First of all, seven times in chains. Now, I've tried to figure this out before. I can't get to seven times in chains from the book of Acts. Can you? Give me the number of times that you find Paul in chains. Twice. Okay, well, you okay, Rome twice. We'll give him Rome twice. Twice in Rome. Once, uh, once on, at the end of the book of Acts. Yes? Yeah. And uh, then once again... Second Timothy, the, uh, the yep. prison. There you go. Yep. Uh, once in Jerusalem. Once in Jerusalem. Okay, he's, uh, this would be uh, when he's uh, arrested uh, in the temple. Caesarea Philippi. No, not, uh, Caesarea Maritima. Okay, but that's the same story. I mean, I, I guess we could say so. Uh, what's, what's the one where the, uh, the, uh, the, the prison guard was going to fall on his sword? Philippi. Five, okay. He's going to be chained. He's going to be wearing chains from the time he's arrested in Jerusalem all the way until he's released in Rome. So he's in chains there two years, four, four years. It's four years plus the sea journey. Four, so I don't know if we can call that in separate incidents. I mean, we could say, maybe we could. But. Was he in chains in Ephesus for a little bit? Oh, see, now this is a good question. Maybe he was. A lot of scholars think he was. Some scholars will go so far as to even say that they think that he wrote the prison epistles from his imprisonment in Ephesus. But we don't really know that there was an imprisonment in Ephesus. It's quite speculative. And that's really my point is that probably we don't know all the stories of Paul. The only stories of Paul we actually know are the ones that he alludes to himself in his letters and the ones that Luke records in the book of Acts. But you'll notice that there are stories in his letters that he mentions that Luke doesn't mention. Yeah. Like, for example, Paul says, five times I was shipwrecked. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know? Luke has him shipwrecked once, or tells the story of, of one shipwreck. You know? And that's, that five times was before that one. So, you know, because he, he wrote that to the Corinthians. So then he was actually shipwrecked six times, if you count the final shipwrecking. Uh, so my point is that there's, this is apostolic lore. I love this stuff. And remember what um, Irenaeus says about Clement? It says, Clement had seen the blessed apostles and conversed with them, and their teaching was still ringing 
in his ears. It's interesting that Clement mentions only two apostles, Peter and Paul. What's interesting about that is those are the only two apostles that tradition associates with Clement. So we know, well, the, the New Testament associates him with Paul. Paul refers to him as my fellow worker, Clement, right? And then tradition says that he was a disciple of Peter. So he's uh, seven times in chains, driven into exile. Well, what does that mean? I don't know. What's the driven into exile part of the story? Stoned. We've heard that one. We've heard that story. And he preached in the east and in the west. What does it mean in the east and in the west? In the east would be like Damascus, Antioch, uh, the whole uh, eastern seaboard there of the Mediterranean. And in the west would be Rome. And he won the genuine glory for his faith, having taught righteousness to the whole world and having reached the farthest limits of the West. So farthest limits of the West, farthest limits of the West is going to be Spain, the farthest limits of the Roman Empire to the West. And that's the tradition. That's how far Paul went. Finally, when he had given his testimony before the rulers, and here when it says when he had given his testimony before the rulers, I'll point out the same thing we said about Peter. After many trials, he, was, he had gave his testimony. It says, thus having given his testimony, he went to the appointed place. What does this mean, giving his testimony? I mean, from, if you come from a, a conventional Christian background, maybe you think of giving your testimonies. So here's Peter gets in front of Nero, or he says, well... You know, when I first came to the Lord Jesus, I was a real bad fisherman. I used to smoke and swear and cuss and, you know, hang on. But, uh, you know, Jesus changed my life. It's not what it has in mind. That's not what giving his testimony is about. Giving the testimony is, uh, and I have this on your sheet where it says, having testified. The Greek word, martyrio, means to testify. The English word martyr is based on the Greek word because under Roman persecution, the believers testified to their faith by dying for the name of Yeshua. And in fact, standing before the tribunal, they had three opportunities to renounce their faith. But if they testified, no, I'm not renouncing, I am a believer, I am a disciple, then they were put to death. So finally, when he had given his testimony before the rulers, his martyrio, his martyrdom, he thus departed from the world and went to the holy place. So uh, we're speaking about the holy place. We're speaking of uh, Gan Eden, the afterlife, like we we're talking about uh, last Sabbath. Having become an outstanding example of patient endurance. Peter and Paul. Peter, we learned, died in 62 or thereabouts. Paul is dated to about 67 some five years later, happened to be the year that Nero was out of town. When Paul was put to death, Nero was out of town doing what? Taking his big rock star tour of Greece and uh, performing in lots of big, big productions. Well, um, he left Tiglianus in charge back in Rome, so Paul probably stood before Tiglianus. He's a particularly wicked man as well. So you can read about that in 2 Timothy. Uh, 2 Timothy 4 is the where Paul will tell that story of his trial before prefect Tigellinus. 
All right, are we ready to go on to the next chapter? Any questions on chapter 5? All right, chapter 6? Yes? This is in chapter 6. To these men who lived holy lives, there was joined a vast multitude of the elect, who, having suffered many torments and tortures because of jealousy, set an illustrious example among us. So who are these great multitude, this vast multitude of the elect? Well, the story, I've already told you the story of how Nero blamed the Christians for starting the great fire of Rome, right? And um, I've told you the story of the arrests and the uh, gruesome deaths that um, these people suffered. And so the point that I want to bring here is that Clement is ascribing this persecution. Once again, we're seeing this persecution ascribed to this idea of jealousy, of envy, of internal division among the brothers and sisters. Baseless hatred is the theme. Baseless hatred in the, among, among believers, among, between um, the people of God, I guess is the way I'm trying, what I'm trying to say. And this implies, once again, it implies collusion of informants from within the believing community or perhaps from within the Jewish community. Because of jealousy, women were persecuted as Danaids and Dirke, or Dirche. And we learned that story as well. But um, he says, suffering in this way terrible and unholy tortures, but they safely reached the goal in the race of faith and received a noble reward, their physical weakness notwithstanding. So, just to remind you, uh, they were persecuted. I have uh, where it says many indignities and tortures on this sheet. Uh, I have a quote from Tacitus who describes the persecution. He says, Mockery and every sort of insult was added to their deaths. Dressed in the skins of wild animals, they were torn apart by dogs and died. They were nailed to crosses or doomed to the flames and burnt alive to serve as innately illumination when daylight expired. This was at the big festival at Circus Neronis and Vatican Hill, the big, um, the, the big festival where Nero was uh, hosting these games, these chariot races and these events, using the occasion to put to death all these Roman Christians he had rounded up because he was holding them responsible for arson, for intentionally burning down Rome. That's what was going on here. And so the way that the women were treated, Clement makes special notice of what happened to the women. Uh, so in, um, in Greek mythology, the Danaid sisters, the Danaid sisters were, there, there was uh, 49 of these sisters, daughters of a man named Danaeus, and he wanted to find husbands for his 49 daughters. So he hosted this big race, and um, the contenders in the race as they would come to the finish line, they would just grab the daughter they wanted. And um, that's how these uh, girls got their husbands. Uh, so what's being implied here is that the Christian women were used as prizes for the, the chariot racers uh, at Circus Neronis. So, you know, they would get, and whatever the competitions were, the other competitions as well, I'm sure. So they would get to rape the women that they wanted. Then... He follows that example with Dirke, or Dirche. 
Dirke in Greek mythology, she had long hair and uh, her hair was tied to the horns of a, of a bull and the bull uh, dragged her and gored her and trampled her to death. So one of the things that uh, Nero did was to dramatize, he loved to dramatize Greek mythology. He was really into the Greek classics and Greek mythology and he was really into theater and he, he loved live theater. And so if there was a war, he used gladiators. So uh, you know how we like to watch uh, violent movies in our culture today, right? Well, they didn't have violent movies, and uh, they weren't so good at special effects, so they would just have people kill each other, you know, for, for entertainment, and that's what they would do. They would, he would actually, like, there would be thousands and thousands and thousands of roaring fans, and then they would march people against each other and have them, you know, slaughter each other on the field. That's what's going on here, is using the Christians for these sorts of things. There's one more thing that I, I would suggest, and that's, uh, in the Denied mythology, you know, these Denied sisters, they, don't lo- they didn't like their husbands too much, so they ended up all killing their husbands, and then they ended up going to Hades for it and that sort of thing. In Hades, they were damned in Hades, and they had to. one of the punishments that they had to do was endlessly fill a leaking bath with buckets of water. So, oh, you know, just all the time carrying these buckets of water, filling this bath, filling this bath, and the water's leaking out, which I think... Nero might have done this as well. He might have had them do something like this to allude to the futile firefighting efforts during the during the several days of the blaze of of Rome. Everybody was trying to put this fire out and it just couldn't be stopped. Anyway, terrible, terrible story, the Neronian persecution. And we've already learned it. We've already spent a long time learning it. So I'm just kind of moving over it very quickly tonight. But you have to think about Clement as the bishop now of Rome. And this persecution he's describing would be, if it's 95, that would, and that was 62, it's, he's thinking back like 33 years ago. He's an old man now, right? So he's thinking back, and, he's, he can, and he was an eyewitness to these things. Somehow he survived these things. But he's thinking back 33 years ago when the, uh, the people he knew and loved and fellowship with and that sort of thing, suffered these atrocities and there's this great massacre in Rome. I mean, how does that impact the consciousness of a community? So he says, these women, they receive a noble reward, their physical weakness notwithstanding. Then he goes on to say, jealousy has estranged wives from their husbands and annulled the saying of our father Adam, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That's a real strange transition, don't you think? Yeah. You go from talking about the horrors of the Neronian persecution, and then going to talk, and you know what? Sometimes husbands and wives don't get along either. And it's, they have, it's like, what's the relationship here? I think there is a relationship here. And I think the relationship has, is something that we can learn, again, by studying the Roman history of these events. Because a big part of the Roman history of these events was... Under Domitian's persecution, especially right now, as he's writing this epistle, this call to the Roman public to inform the authorities of any Gentiles who are practicing Jewish customs or drifting into Jewish ways. And so this is splitting up families, is breaking up families. We know from the apostolic record and from apocryphal literature that very often one spouse gets it and says, yeah, this Jewish monotheism makes a lot of sense. And the other is like, I'm not giving up the idols, right? This very, uh, this, that was a very typical sort of thing. And so what I think 
is being alluded to here is that some of the informants in the persecutions were husbands who said, yeah, you know what? And they got my wife too. And now, you know, they're, now she's not worshiping the gods and she's not, she's not behaving like a good pagan idolatress anymore. He says, jealousy is estranged wives from their husbands. And in all the saying of our father Adam, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. What is the saying of, of our father Adam who says bone of my bones? Uh, that's Genesis 2.23. Uh, the passage that says they shall become one flesh. So my suggestion here is that Clement is tactfully referring to tensions in Roman households where one spouse has drifted into quote-unquote atheism, which is what they called us, the atheists, or Jewish ways, which is the, the other thing they called us, the Jewish superstition. That is, has become a Christian. Okay, one more verse here at the end of this chapter. It says, And jealousy and strife have overthrown great cities and uprooted great nations. Again, what does that have to do with what just came before? And I think chronologically, it does make sense. If, he's talk, if you're talking about the Neronian persecution, uh, which was in 62, and the death of Peter, which was in 62, and then the death of Paul, which was in 67, just three years later is the overthrow of great cities. That is Jerusalem and all the cities of Judea and the Galilee. And remember from last week, I said we can read this word zealotus, zeal, jealousy. It's, it's, the, it's the Greek word for zealotry. So every time he says jealousy, you can think of the zealot movement of the first century. Or you could translate it as baseless hatred. So I would call it, I would translate, if I, if I was translating this, I would, instead of jealousy and strife, I would say zealotry and baseless hatred have overthrown great cities and uprooted great nations. What was the sin of Jerusalem? Exactly. Baseless hatred. And so I think you have a direct correspondence here in Clement 6, 4. Jealousy and strife have overthrown great cities. The epistle we're studying is like from the extended version of the Bible, or the director's cut, if you prefer. Or perhaps it's the deleted scenes from the end of the DVD. It should be in the Bible, according to some opinions. Why isn't it? Well, the final canonical lists that were drawn up for most of the church, even though it's, I, think, I think it's still read in some places, but for most of the church, the final canonical lists don't include Clement. And they have good reasons. The reason is, the main reason is, that the criteria for making it into the New Testament was you had to be an apostle or writing on behalf of an apostle. So Luke, okay, Luke's not an apostle, but come on, he's, he's writing down, you know, he's writing on behalf of Paul, you know, he's recording Paul's adventures and, and uh, he's compiling apostolic information and literature and that sort of thing. So Luke's in, even though he's not apostle. Same goes for Mark. Mark's not an apostle, but he's writing Peter's teachings down. You see how that works? Clement is right on the edge there. He's not definitely not an apostle. Not even, not, you know, he's a Roman. He's a Roman. Maybe he's Jewish by now. Maybe he's converted. I think he has. I think he's, he's Jewish. So Clement is... Um, that's the main reason Clement didn't make it. The other reason 
that is often cited, but I think it has less, it's, it's not as big a deal, is that Clement talks about the phoenix, the mythological bird, the phoenix, as if it actually existed. I don't think that's why he's, he didn't, he's not in the, in the final canon, though. Because, for one thing, who cares? All right? And number two, who's to say there wasn't a phoenix in the first century? Yeah, I, I would say you have to prove there was no phoenix. <laughs> well, you know what the, you know what everyone know what the phoenix is. You don't know what the phoenix is. Phoenix is a bird. It's a remarkable bird. There's only one at a time. There's only one phoenix at a time. He lives about a century, and after a century, he flies around. He flies to a certain nest where he bursts into flames. Whoosh! And then, after his he his the conflagration of the phoenix, there's a little baby phoenix. In the ashes, he grows up, and he's the next phoenix for the next century or so, however long a phoenix lives, I forget. Clement will tell us all about it when we get chapter seven. We write these things, dear friends, not only to admonish you, but also to remind ourselves, for we are in the same arena, and the same contest awaits us. There's some encouraging words. <laughs> After discussing the Neuronian persecution, we are in the same arena and the same contest awaits us. But remember, Clement is writing this right as the Domitian persecutions have taken off. Some three decades later, Rome rediscovers Christians and starts beating them up again. That's where we're at. Therefore, let us abandon empty and futile thoughts. What are the empty and futile thoughts? The empty and futile thoughts are the hostility and arguments that triggered the unrest in the Corinthian congregations. Several of you weren't here last week, so just let me just give you the briefest of overview of context for what this epistle is about. Over in Corinth, young leaders, young upstarts came, and they said, you guys, you old elders who have been ruling this community, you're out of touch. We're taking over. And they basically had a mutiny. In Corinth, the Corinthian congregation sends to Clement for advice on what they should do, and asks them to settle the asks asks the elders in Rome to settle the, the dispute. Clement has to delay his reply because there is some bitter persecution going on in Rome at the time. Some several months later, he gets around to composing this epistle. He's rebuking the young upstarts. He's saying, "You need to put the old leaders back." in power, because the old leaders were appointed, they're the second generation of those appointed by the apostles, by Paul and, and the apostles. That's the basic gist. You get that, you got the plot. The 65 chapters of Clement are an argument for how to correct things in Corinth and why they need to be correct. All right, so this is what the empty and futile words are. He's, he's basically saying, look, we're probably going to be thrown to lions at any time. We're going to stand in the arena. There's going to be cheering crowds, and they're going to be doing all sorts of unspeakable things to us, and we're fighting with each other. How, how does this make any sense? That's what's the, what the empty and futile thoughts are. And that's, that's, that's the, those were the zealots. And that's the same word that Clement keeps using over and over and over. When he, every time it says jealousy, it's, it's the Greek zelos. Therefore, let us abandon empty and futile thoughts and let us conform to the glorious and holy rule of our tradition. What is the glorious and holy rule of our tradition? Don't know. 
He doesn't say. But I'm thinking it's to be willing to lay down your life for the gospel. Indeed, let us know what is good and what is pleasing and what is acceptable in the sight of him who made us. Does this remind you of any Pauline passage? Philippians 4.8 Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Yes. The good stuff. The letters, <laughs> the original manuscripts that were passed from generation. Yeah, it's the authentic it's stuff that came from the previous generation. Bingo. Yeah, exactly. I always forget that tradition has a negative connotation. So does religion. I always hear that. I always hear people saying, you know, it's not about religion. <laughs> it's like, I'm not religious. I'm not religious. Yeah. I'm spiritual. I'm spiritual. Whatever. <laughs> I, I think you've, you've identified what the objection is in the culture. The culture says, we don't want any authority that's going to give us rules and regulations to tell us how we have to live our lives. Therefore, I'm not religious. You know, I'm just spiritual. I have a relationship with God, but, you know, it's not that kind of... Anyway. Well, let us fix our eyes on the blood of Christ and understand how precious it is to his Father. Because being poured out for our salvation, it won for the whole world the grace of repentance. That's a turn of phrase that's unique to Clement. I've never heard that before. The grace of repentance. But that's, I mean, that's, that's a beautiful merger of apostolic concepts. The grace of repentance. The favor that you achieve with God when you repent. Where does that come from? You know, because the, the classic Protestant would say, no works, you know, you can't, your repentance, it's like, um, but Clement says, no, the grace of repentance is, where does this favor that your repentance engenders come from? It comes from the blood of Christ. Huh? Isn't that nice? Let us fix our eyes on the blood of Christ and understand how precious it is to the Father. Because being poured out for our salvation, it won for the whole world the grace of repentance. And now he's going to give us some examples of the universal, how this works universally. And this is some really exciting theology. Uh, yes? Um, in one of Peter's sermons in Acts, he says, even to the Gentiles has been given the grace um, of repentance. I believe in Acts 2 and Acts 10. Really? Grace yeah. of repentance. That very Well, the gift of repentance. Yeah, I think gift. The gift of repentance. But if you hook it up with Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, um, it is the gift of God. The gift is hooked with grace in Ephesians 2. Okay. So I'm just, you know... You're, you're like connecting dots here. I do that all the time. That's good. That's what we do. But here, I want to tell you something really exciting here. I think this is really exciting. Because did you see what he says now? He says, um, the blood of Christ is poured out for our salvation and wins for the whole world the grace of repentance. Now we're going to say, what do you mean by that? For the whole world. I mean, do you mean for the whole world? Or do you mean just for us? <laughs> so, so that's the question. So now here's how he's going to answer that. Well, let us review all the generations in turn <laughs> and learn that from generation to generation, the master has given an opportunity for repentance to those who desire to turn to him. 
So he's, he's going to say, in every generation, and we're talking since the foundation of the world, those who desire to turn to God are given this grace of repentance on the basis of the blood of Christ. For example, Noah preached repentance and those who obeyed were saved. It was just his wife and three sons and <laughs> their wives. But nevertheless, the point still holds true. <laughs> this is interesting, though. Noah preached repentance because according to one tr strand of tradition in Judaism, Noah gets a lot of grief for not preaching repentance. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a whole strand of tradition that says, you know, Noah, he's not so great. Abraham's great. Noah, not so great. God says, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham gets up and he says, hey, wait, what if there's 50 people? What if there's 40 people? And he negotiates with Hashem, right? Not so Noah. Noah, uh, God says, I'm going to flood the whole world. Noah's like, where do I build the ark? You know, <laughs> right? So why doesn't Noah say, please, Lord, what if there's 50 people? There's 50. You know, why doesn't he start to negotiate? Well, apostolic line is he did. And not only that, but he taught repentance. He, he continued to preach repentance and tried to reverse this thing. So, and there's a stream of Jewish tradition that follows that line as well. And so I put a few of these on here for you, both the apostolic. Uh, Peter refers to Noah as preacher of repentance. That's 2 Peter 2.5. So no, no surprise that Clement picks that up. Uh, Peter writes, the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. And that corresponds to a statement in the Midrash Rabbah, where it says, For 120 years Noah planted cedars and cut them down. When they asked him, Why are you doing this? He said, The master of the universe has warned me he will bring a flood on the world. They replied, If a flood does come, it will only come on you and your father's household. But this, is, this means for 120 years he was, he was trying to stall and, and preach repentance. Uh, or Pirka de Rebbe Eliezer says, Noah took 52 years to make the ark so that they would repent of their ways. But they did not repent. So even in Judaism, there is this idea that Noah preached repentance. But it comes out very strong in Peter's teaching. Okay, forget about Noah. Jonah, for example. Jonah preached destruction to the people of Nineveh but they, were, but they, repenting of their sins, made atonement to God by their prayers and received salvation, even though they were alienated from God. What does it mean they were alienated from God? They were yeah, they're idolaters. Not only were they Gentiles, they, didn't have, they, they weren't even monotheists. These were idolaters. They lived in Nineveh. They were Assyrians, the most cruel and wicked empire on the earth. You know, and... Um, but nevertheless, Jonah comes, preaches, they repent, they repent to, to the God of Israel. What's the point? I, the, I, what I think is uh, remarkable here is that Clement predicates the efficaciousness of their repentance upon the blood of Christ, of the blood of Messiah. Isn't that amazing? Mm -hmm. Backdates back it. Very good. Very good. Backdates it. But this, this, this is the same backdating that we see Paul using in his epistle to the Romans, where he says, you know, uh, 
now at the end of time, this uh, you know, this this event has happened, but uh, this had to happen because God left sins committed aforetime unpunished. So even in Pauline theology, the death and suffering of Messiah and his resurrection, even though it happens at a fixed point in time, it's not as if it's only efficacious going forward. It's also efficacious going back. And this is an important... What, what does that mean? That means that anyone who was saved, even before Jesus was born, was saved on the merit of Yeshua of Nazareth in apostolic thought. Yes. I think, I mean, that should bring up some questions. That's some pretty provocative material. I think. For example, we're talking about the time of Noah. It says Noah was righteous in his generation, perfect. Noah walked with Hashem. Noah walked with God. So here you have a guy who, I would say that what you're describing as relationship is what the Torah calls walked with God. Okay. You know, like, or Enoch walked with God. Um, so yeah, I think um, I think it's it's always been within the heart of man to have relationship with with God, and when that relationship's absent, that's when we uh, we're uh, pursuing idols, we're pursuing materialism, we're pursuing all sorts of other things to fill that. At the same time, that's not to say that's not to suggest that every Ninevite who repented in order to dis- to avoid the destruction of the city all of a sudden had an intimate personal relationship with the God of Israel or with, you know, or, or, or with the son. That's a different thing. All right. I think any other questions on chapter seven? He's saying, saying that all these people that, that, that Jonah preached to in Nineveh, like are saved now on the basis of the blood of Christ. And they never heard of, you know, just cause they sat in sackcloth for 40 days or something. On a physical level. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Did fire come down and destroy their city? No. So I guess they were saved, at least for the next, yeah, on, at least in the immediate. Um, in terms of whatever was going to happen to them in, you know, in the afterlife, the war, the resurrection of the world to come, I don't know that we can say. But uh, yeah, well, that's another question. But this is, this is a good example of how, you know, in Christian thought, salvation and being saved is a very narrow thing. It's like, are you going to heaven, like we talked about on Saturday? Whereas in biblical language, it means all sorts of things getting out of trouble, basically. <laughs> getting out of trouble, getting out of distress. You know, if I had a deadly illness and Hashem healed me, I'm saved. You know, <laughs> the glory, hallelujah, saved. And that's the kind of language of the Psalms all the time. You know, I wait for your salvation it's immediate salvation as well. So what you're saying is if yeah, no. the Ninevites were Baptists, then... They are good. They're in. <laughs> <laughs> because they're once saved, always saved. Right. And since Nineveh was saved, obviously, they're always saved. Yeah, another question, another question. I don't want to go into eternal security or something like that or talking about that. So we have another chapter to do in only four minutes to do it. (laughs) Chapter eight. The masters of the grace of God spoke about repentance through the Holy Spirit. Who are the masters of the grace of God? 
Yours says, oh, ministers. Oh, yeah, you're right. Mine says ministers. The ministers of the grace of God. That was my first thought, too. Peter and Paul. We're back to talking about Peter and Paul and the apostles. But no, we're not. It's the prophets. This is he's speaking of the prophets. The prophets spoke about repentance through the Holy Spirit. Indeed, the master of the universe himself spoke about repentance with an oath. And now he's going to quote to us from Ezekiel 33. For as I live, says the Lord, that's an oath. As I live, says the Lord, I do not desire the death of the sinner so much as his repentance. We knew that one. You all have heard that one before, right? I'm pretty sure we say that on Yom Kippur. For as I live, says the Lord, I do not desire the death of the sinner so much as his repentance. If it sounds a little bit different to you, remember Clement's quoting from the Greek, not from the Hebrew. So he's quoting from the Septuagint version of the scriptures. He also added this merciful declaration. So when it says he also, that's God, also added this merciful declaration. Repent, O house of Israel, of your iniquity. Say to the sons of my people, though your sins reach from the earth to heaven, and though they be redder than scarlet and blacker than sackcloth, yet if you turn to me with your whole heart and say, Father, I will listen to you, as a holy people. Where's that from? No looking at the apparatus. Sounds like a passage from Isaiah, but not really. That is nowhere. That's from nowhere. That's from a book of the Bible that Clement had that we don't. Really? Yep. Or, or a version. You know, one of the problems... I had this conversation with this woman today. I was having this conversation with this woman in Taiwan. Amazing story. Yeah, she, you know, email back and forth. Jewish woman in Taiwan. And she's just done. She's just done. She's like, every time the apostles quote, you know, it's nothing like it. In the, every time they, they quote the Tanakh, it's nothing like what we're, you know, it says in Tanakh. Like, well, okay. There's a couple things going on there. For one thing, they have way more versions of the scriptures than we do. I mean, we have our. NIAV or NASB, they had they had multiple copies of the Hebrew alone. You know, we know this from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Then there's the uh, Septuagint versions, which you know we see all sorts of divergences. Then there's the Targums, which is a very common. That's the Aramaic. It's very common to have to use very loose paraphrasing in the Targumic style, which is just standard in first century Judaism. But one of the cool things is that the apostles had more Bible than we do. Yeah, they had more books. For example, I've, and this is the classic example, but when the apostles, when Jude starts quoting Enoch, as it says in the scriptures, he starts quoting Enoch, right? <laughs> but anyway, so this is a beautiful verse. Isn't it? I'm going to read it to you again. Because it's, I even put it on the sheet here because it's, it's so beautiful. Where it says, repent, O house of Israel, in italics. Repent, O house of Israel, of your iniquity. Say to the sons of my people, though your sins reach from the earth to heaven. It's like, it's like a ladder, you know. And though they be redder than scarlet and blacker than sackcloth. They're red and black at the same time. Yet if you turn to me with your whole heart and say, Father... I will listen to you as a holy people. Isn't that great? You, know, you turn to me with your whole heart and say, Father, you can see why the apostles would have loved this text, wherever they found it from. Uh, because it has that Abba language in it, which they would have associated 
with the teaching of Yeshua. I thought, you know, maybe it's, maybe this is, I, I can see, repent, O house of Israel. I could pick that up out of the prophets. But it's, the language seems so deliberate. Say to the sons of my people, though your sins reach from earth to heaven. Where is that? I don't know. Look, I probably put about five minutes of thought into this today. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm pretty sure that this is nowhere in the Bible. <laughs> if you will turn to me with your whole heart and say, Father, I will listen to you as a holy people. They're going to repent because it starts with repent, O house of Israel. So you're repenting. So if you're repenting, then I will listen to you. I will receive your repentance is the way we would understand that. I'll receive your prayer of repentance. And in another place, he says, and now this one you, you know, this is from Isaiah, wash and be clean. This is uh, from Isaiah. This is the paradigm for repentance. Wash and be clean. Remove the wickedness from your souls out of my sight. Put an end to your wickedness. Learn to do good. Seek out justice. Deliver the one who is wronged. Give judgment on behalf of the orphan and grant justice to the widow. And come, let us reason together, he says. Even though your sins be as crimson, I will make them white as snow. And though they be as scarlet, I will make them white as wool. And if you are willing and listen to me, you shall eat the good things of the earth. But if you are not willing and do not listen to me, a sword shall devour you. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken these things. That's a passage from Isaiah. Straight, straight text from the Septuagint version of Isaiah. And the prescription for repentance. Quit sinning. Start doing good. Turn to God. And Hashem will wash us. He'll clean us. I like the way that it starts with the, these... Um, that imperative, wash and be clean. Because you can just almost hear John the Baptist picking this up as he's introducing his immersion for repentance, he calls it. Wash and be clean. Remove the wickedness from your souls. I can, it just rolls right off John the Baptist's lips, doesn't it? It ends with the passage says, if you don't, if you don't listen to me, a sword shall devour you. And I believe that this is another allusion to the first Jewish revolt and the fall of Jerusalem. So he says, he, he ends this chapter saying, Seeing then that he desires all his beloved to participate in repentance. This is something God wants from all of his people, all of his beloved, to participate in repentance. He confirmed it by an act of his almighty will. What a strange ending, huh? What is the act of his almighty will that he confirmed his desire for everyone to participate in repentance? Well, you have to go all the way back to the middle of the previous chapter where he said, let us fix our eyes on the blood of Christ and under, understand how precious it is uh, because it won for the whole world the grace of repentance. So according to Clement, the suffering of the Son confirms the call, the universal call to repentance. How so? Well, because in Clement's theology then, through the suffering of the Son, repentance is efficacious, which means it works for the forgiveness of sins. Brings us to redemption. Yep. But not on, not on its own merit. As you think about repentance, it doesn't have a lot of merit, actually. I mean, you still did the bad thing you did, right? I mean, it's like, 
I do a terrible thing. I just, just do this terrible thing. And then I say, I'm sorry, it doesn't make it go away. It's still there. I still am the, I, and in fact, I'm still the same terrible person. I might feel good, better about myself on the inside. <laughs> I'm not going to do that again. <laughs> but that's me going forward, you know, projecting in the future. And in reality, I am the guy who did the terrible thing, right? So how does repentance help anyone? I'm repenting because it makes me feel better. In the court of justice, you know, even if, if I like, for example, if I go, if I, if I commit a crime and then I stand before the judge and say, but I repent for that. He's like, yeah, but you're still guilty as sin. Yet the sages never t stop talking about how great it is. Oh, the greatness of repentance. And so the question is, at what point does repentance come to the, actually bring us to this cleansing that Isaiah is speaking about, that the, your sins will be white taken away. And from what Clement is saying is that this divine act, this act of the almighty will, the death, the suffering of the tzaddik, the suffering of, of Yeshua, is the mechanism that makes repentance work for the forgiveness of sins in the court of heaven. And it should be national. The Messiah came to save, you know, he's the Messiah of Israel. So, in, in, the, in the final redemption, it will be national, for, for sure. Yeah, well, Paul says all of Israel will be saved, but he's looking towards the final redemption. Okay, there you go. That's uh, Clement, 1 through 8. Next week, we'll try to take on maybe six chapters.